3: channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
4: On this episode of Newt's World, on March 3rd, two Americans were killed in daylight abductions after their minivan of four traveled across the U.S.-Mexican border into Matamoros, Mexico. The Gulf Cartel later apologized and said the kidnappers had acted on their own and they were turning them over to authorities. The incident of innocent Americans being killed after they crossed the U.S.-Mexican border led me to consider how much Mexico has become a narco state and how the cartels who control Mexico should be designated as terrorist organizations. The U.S. must help the Mexican people defeat the Mexican drug cartels both for our long-term security and survival and for Mexico's. Here to talk about the current crisis in Mexico, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and my good friend, Joshua Trevino, Chief of Intelligence and Research at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Josh, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
5: Thank you, Speaker. Very glad to be here, honored.
4: I thought it was fascinating that the Gulf cartel would publish a letter. I mean, the whole notion that they're a semi-sovereign state of their own right and say that they really felt badly about it and they condemned it. I mean, what do you make of all this? Was this just a random moment of some of the guys going nuts?
5: It could be that, but I don't think we know the whole story yet. You know, what ended up happening was that there were five men who were bound and there was a handwritten letter kind of attached to them with an apology from what purported to be the Gulf Cartel. I've talked with some sources in Mexico about this, and there's some doubt as to whether or not it was a rival faction trying to set up the Cartel del Golfo in this. We don't really know, and we don't even really have the full story as to what happened to the Americans down there. Obviously, there were four who entered, two were murdered, and thank God two of them are back. But as with so many things in Mexican violence and in cartel world, the full story is yet to be known. And the only thing that we can say for certain is exactly what you said, which is that it's really the cartels that are the effective sovereigns of much of Mexico at this point.
4: Well, you know, back in 2019, drug cartel gunmen killed nine U.S. citizens, members of the Church of Latter-day Saints in an ambush. And it was strange. They killed six children and three women. I mean, what was the sense of that?
5: Well, it was a message to that particular family. So some of your listeners probably know that there are Mormon colonies, offshoot LDS colonies in northern Mexico. They have a history that goes back in many cases to the 19th century. And the LeBaron family is the descendants of one of them. They're dual US-Mexican nationals. And one of their civic virtues, I think, is that they don't really want to have much to do with cartel operations. So you have this caravan of mothers and children who were traveling in the state of Sonora, and they were ambushed. I believe it was La Linnea who did the ambush, and they killed the mothers and the cars with gunfire and several of the children. It's a horrific detail, but it must be said because it really illuminates just who and what the cartels are. Many of the children strapped in their car seats were set on fire with the vehicles. And it was a message to the LeBaron family get on board and stop obstructing the cartels, a cruel and horrific message. But I think this is the thing that all of us in the United States need to take away from it. There was an era in which that would not have happened because of the known nationality of the Americans involved. And if that veil of protection has dropped, which it has, and if the cartels do not fear retribution, which they don't, then the fault lies, of course, in them for their monstrousness, but also in us on the United States side for failing to exert that level of deterrence. And that's the policy question we need to think about now.
4: In 2020, there were 149 deaths of U.S. citizens in Mexico. About a third of them were homicides. In 2021, there were 203 deaths recorded, 75 of which were homicides. And in the first six months of 2022, there were 115 deaths. These are all U.S. citizens, of which 25 were homicides. Now, in Canada, And the same six-month period when there were 115 deaths in Mexico, there were seven deaths of U.S. citizens in Canada, none of which were homicides. Is it, in fact, becoming more dangerous to be American in Mexico just because there are so many thousands of Americans visiting Mexico? Is that actually not a significant problem?
5: Well, it's becoming more dangerous to be in Mexico period, and obviously it varies from place to place. There are places in Mexico that continue to be reasonably safe. Mexico City, a lot of it continues to be reasonably safe, if you consider 1970s New York City safe. But there are areas in northern Mexico, for example, Matamoros, where even someone like me, who works in Mexico policy, simply will not go. I wouldn't trust the stats out of Mexico in full candor. There's a lot of political influence that happens with them. I don't think that the homicide tracking is great. I think the numbers that you gave serve to illustrate one big point, though, which is that it's far more dangerous, exponentially so, to go to Mexico than it is to a place like Canada. And the reason for that is that Mexico in general is dangerous. A lot of these homicides are of Mexican-American dual nationals, many of them from my own Texas who travel to Mexico to see family or to shop or go on Touristic ventures, for example. And that is sort of a signaling mechanism, I would say, that uh, again, the reluctance to target Americans is fading. And this is what I've heard directly from DEA personnel in Mexico City. And also that Mexican civic life is continuing on a slow slide downward. And that is going to inevitably affect us here in the United States.
4: The State Department has issued do not travel warnings for a number of Mexican states. The level four warning says do not travel. The level two warning of exercise increased caution, they even apply now to Cancun. And there are a number of places at a level three, which says basically ought to reconsider whether or not you're going to go there. It's surprising to me how widespread now the State Department's level of concern is. They're normally pretty cautious about this. And part of this isn't just killing, but it's also kidnapping. I was sort of shocked to read That there are currently 550 Americans still missing in Mexico?
5: That's right. Unfortunately, and I wish this were not so, unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of them are probably deceased through fair means or foul. And you're right that the State Department bureaucracy errs on the side of caution. But I think you need to look at the disparity between what the State Department bureaucracy is saying, which I take as broadly accurate, and what the actual Secretary of State is saying. I'd like to read a tweet that just came out from Secretary of State Blinken. He said, I spoke with the Mexican Foreign Secretary, Marcelo Ebrard, on bolstering our security cooperation to combat the illicit production of fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. We value Mexico's strong partnership as we work to keep our communities safe from criminal networks. Now, anybody who knows what's happening in Mexico knows this is a borderline farce. There is no effective partnership with the Mexican state at this point. It's papering over a real chasm between the Mexican regime and the United States. It's getting wider and wider as a consequence of the Mexican president's positive partnership with many of the cartels at this point. And so breaking officialdom, especially at the top with the Biden White House, out of its state of denial over what's happening on Mexico and focusing it on American concerns, should it not be a major concern of our State Department, by the way, whose largest missions are in Mexico, to ascertain the fate of these 500 plus Americans who are missing.
4: In terms of missions, somebody told me the other day, it's also true that the largest KGB mission, Russian intelligence mission, is in Mexico City. The largest Chinese intelligence mission is in Mexico City, and that the Iranians have a substantial presence in Mexico City.
5: I did not know that, but it would go to follow, yes.
4: (laughs) Sometimes we have to remind Americans that whatever risk we're under, the people of Mexico are worse. I mean... Supposedly, there have now been close to 100,000 people who have disappeared in Mexico. That's just staggering.
5: It is. Anywhere else in the world, what Mexico has endured since 2006 would be considered a major war. What Mexicans, ordinary Mexicans, have endured at the hands of the cartels and the state that abets them is simply monstrous and it stacks up to almost anything that you can find, for example, in the chaotic Middle East or Africa, just in terms of just the horrifying disregard of the citizenry there. And we have to be aware that that's the case. You know, one of the examples that I like to point to is the 43 students who disappeared at Tinapa several years back. We know pretty much what happened to them now, although the bodies have never been found. The army and local police forces executed 43 students because the soldiers actually who were in the pay of local cartels. So they killed these students. The bodies disappeared. And subsequent to the disappearance in 2014, there were a couple of years in which there was a search by various civil society organizations for the mass grave that was presumed to hold these students. And here's the horrifying thing is that they never found the mass grave. But they found several other mass graves all over central Mexico. And just imagine the level of violence and rapacity that's required to generate just random finding of previously unknown mass graves while you're searching for another one that you end up not finding. There are tragedies unfolding in Mexico, massacres, kidnappings, rapes. Murders that we'll never know about, but they are scarring that society. And it is ultimately because the state at large has made the choice to accommodate itself to it and allow it. Until it stops making that choice, Mexico is going to continue to suffer.
4: In that context, you mentioned since 2006. Did something decisive happen in 2006?
5: Yes. The president of Mexico at the time, Felipe Calderon, made the decision to bring the military in versus the cartels in Mexico. And it backfired. The institutions writ large were incompetent to execute the mission, many of them because they were already colluding with the cartels. And so what was intended as introducing the military into basically Mexican civil affairs, civil society, which it had not really been a part of for the preceding 70, 80 years, depending on how you want to count it, resulted in effectively sort of this arms race in which each side attempted to outdo the other. And the cartels found out that they could out escalate or buy off the forces of the state. And since then, it's sort of been not to make light of it, but it's sort of been off to the races. The violence has continued. A militarization of Mexican life has been the result. And the armed forces themselves have turned out to not really be on the side of the state, nearly so much as they are for themselves, which means occasionally for the cartels. And now, fast forwarding 17 years at this point, here we are and the murder stats, the violence has never been worse.
4: Mexico is also a major source of our drug problem, and it's staggering, but between 2012 and 2021, 656,000 Americans have died from drug overdoses. That is literally 12 times as many as died in the entire eight years of the Vietnam War.
5: Yeah, exactly right. And if this were the result of anything but drug overdoses, we would already be at war with the purveyors of the death
4: I mean, half the problem is us in that our culture has so collapsed that people think risking their lives on drugs is a legitimate exercise. But the other half is people who deliberately go out and market these drugs and bring them in here, knowing that in the case of fentanyl, for example, it's going to kill a lot of people. Now, according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, there are nine major cartels that have the greatest drug trafficking impact in the United States. It seems to me that part of what we've seen is these cartels get richer and richer and they get bigger, and that we underestimate what their reach is inside the United States.
5: We do. Every one of them has significant networks inside the United States, mostly devoted to distribution. So their operational approach in the U.S. is of necessity different than it is in Mexico. They're focused on distribution. They're not focused on targeting the police, killing mayors, things like that, things that they do as a matter of course in Mexico. And that's because we do have a more robust state and civil society here in the US. But that doesn't mean they don't have a corrupting influence. I can name you three Texas sheriffs right off the bat, county sheriffs who effectively were subcontractors for the cartels. There was Sheriff Gantú in Cameron County, which is where Brownsville, his nickname was Protect the Load because he was in the pay of Cartel Del Golfo. And there was Sheriff Lupe Trevino, a fellow Trevino in Hidalgo County, who he and his son subcontracted the sheriff's office out to Los Cetas. And then there was the sheriff out in Presidio County who subcontracted himself out to the Ohinaga cartel as well. And so these are the examples that we know about then probably the actual problem of corruption of public officialdom in the United States is much, much larger. And I would caution the listeners to not assume that it's just a border phenomenon. These drugs have to be distributed everywhere from Maine to Oregon to California and back. And that requires a network to see it all through. So they're here, they're in the communities, and they are an eroding force on American civics
4: real large. To what extent is there a very real danger that if we do decide, as many people would like us to, that we're going to designate these as terrorist organizations. And if we methodically start going after them, that in fact they will also wage war in the United States, not just passively in Mexico.
5: I think it's a real concern. I think it would be foolish to dismiss the possibility, especially if they feel existentially threatened and especially if they feel that they have a political or ideological angle to the struggle, which many of them do. Actually, it's an error to think of them, for example, as kind of a non-political mafia type organization. They're much more, they cohere much more than that. That being said, the analysis that we make, we actually do at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have a paper on this coming out in the coming 48 hours is that they're already at war with us. And so it's not as if there's another level for them to go to that won't do equivalent damage to what they're already doing. That doesn't mean we dismiss the concerns that they raise or the challenge that they pose. But at the same time, to your point, hundreds of thousands, half a million plus of Americans have died at the hands of the drugs that they purvey and the activities that they undertake. And we have an obligation to oppose it and by opposing end it.
4: The former ambassador to Mexico, Christopher Orlando estimated that 35 to 40% of Mexico is now under direct cartel rule?
5: Correct. He did that in a public forum and the Mexican president just about lost his mind over the statement. Of course, he's the one who's made the choice to allow it. It's functionally true. The writ of law, the writ of authority in much of Mexico, particularly in places like Tamaulipas or in the highlands of Sinaloa or in Tierra Caliente down south, simply does not run, but the writ of the cartel bosses does, and that's a deliberate surrender of sovereignty that the Mexican state could choose to take on, but has not.
4: One of the proofs of that concept was in October 2019, when Mexican troops went into Sinaloa and arrested El Chapo's son, there were 700 cartel fighters with armored cars, rocket launchers, and heavy machine guns, and the military had to release the prisoner.
5: It's even worse than that. They didn't have to release the prisoner. They were under siege. And there is ample reason to suspect that they could have it out and sent a relief column in. They released the prisoner because the president of Mexico himself, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, made a phone call and ordered them to do so, to bring the battle in Culiacán to an end. Now, he presents this as a humanitarian gesture. Of course, it really showed who's really in charge. And that's just had terrible consequences in succeeding months. That same son of El Chapo, Ovidio, El Raton, was captured again in January. The Sinaloan cartel tried the same thing. They brought out their light infantry. They shut down several airports. I believe they forced down, they didn't shoot down, but they forced down some aviation, which is suggestive of considerable military capacity on their part. And this time, Sedena, which is the army, held firm and they got the guy out and now he is in detention. But the interesting detail after that And this was not reported in U.S. press. I actually had to get this from Spanish media, so El Pais in particular, who has some very good reporters in Mexico. The Mexican army tried to distribute aid packages to the local population after the battle was over. And the local population rejected it. There were a lot of people who told them, you need to get out. You're not our army. You don't represent us. You've come and you've destroyed our neighborhoods. And, Mr. Speaker, I know you are a student of insurgency and counterinsurgency, and you will recognize that immediately as a classic insurgency situation, in which the population identifies with the non-state sovereign force over the putative armed forces of the country. And that's an incredibly dangerous place for Mexico to be. And it's a dangerous place for the United States to have a neighbor with 130 million population next door to it that is in that circumstance.
4: Isn't it true that the president of Mexico, Obrador, actually went to See the mother of one of the cartel leaders?
5: Not just any cartel leader. He went to Barreiguato and paid homage to the mother of El Chapo himself. You know, El Chapo, who's currently spending the rest of his life in Supermax in Colorado right now, deservedly. But he went to her and paid his respects to her and is even having the army, I believe this project is still underway, build a road up to her hometown, which previously did not have a paved road to it. And so there's sort of this obeisance and respect that's being paid. More than one journalist in Mexico has said to me that they can't find a single example of the Mexican president saying a negative word about the Sinaloan cartel. And that is extremely telling. He's got plenty of negative words for the United States and the Americans and for conservatives in Mexico and for fellow Mexican citizens. And he has this whole roster of paid objects, but he'll never say a negative word about the Sinaloans.
4: Are the Sinaloas the biggest of the cartels? We can't be sure. They
5: are among the top three, I think it's safe to say. If I had to make a list, I would say it's probably them, Cartel del Golfo, New Generation, Jalisco, and maybe La Familia, Michoacana.
4: In November of 2022, you wrote a paper called Hold Them Accountable, Mexican Elites in the Cartels. And you wrote, Texas should compile a list of corrupt Mexican elites and request the federal government to deny them entry to the U.S. or revoke their visas. Why aren't we already doing that?
5: We aren't doing it because the policymaking class in D.C., this is changing, thankfully for the better, but it has been very, very slow to adjust to the realities of Mexico in the past decade. You know, a lot of Mexico policymaking is still gripped by what I'll call this 1994 consensus. 1994, of course, is the NAFTA year in which we basically agreed to let Mexico have free trade with us and enter into this community of nations with the expectation, it's a very 90s expectation, you'll remember this, that everyone was going to be uplifted by the promise of free trade and democracy. And it was gonna work for the PRC and it was gonna work for Mexico as well. That reality has obviously been disproven. Mexico has actually gotten worse in many ways. For policymakers to kind of divorce from self from this and face the reality that they have very, very difficult tasks ahead of them. Number one being, how do you deal with a Mexico that is not a partner? How do you deal with a Mexico that may be an antagonist? There's just a reluctance to do it. And so when this list of corrupt actors that you're referring to, it's called the Engle List at the federal level, was generated, it was only applied to Central American nations. So the Northern Triangle, and I believe they added Nicaragua shortly thereafter. But obviously they need to add Mexico to it. It is so critical that they do so, in no small part because Mexico depends, and these Mexican elites depend upon access to the United States, not just for their economy, but also for their way of life. There's a particular lifestyle And Texans know it very well of elite Mexicans who go to the hospital in Houston. They send their kids to UT Austin. They park their capital in real estate in the Rio Grande Valley. And the threat of being denied that is a much more compelling threat than any appeal to civic rectitude or even national patriotism on that side.
2: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
4: Let's say that we did declare that they were terrorist organizations. To what degree would you use genuine military capabilities and to what degree would you simply use that as an excuse to restrict them in the United States?
5: Great question. There's been two incidents in recent memory that I think would have justifiably triggered unilateral use of military force in Mexico, American military force in Mexico. One is what we just discussed, the massacre of the LeBaron women and children. That should have triggered an automatic response. And the other was a little over a decade back. I don't recall the exact year it happened. But there was a targeting of signals intelligence collection, American signals intelligence collection personnel in Mexico that happened in central Mexico. And it was obviously a hit on known US government personnel. The threshold to me for unilateral action is actually fairly high. There has to be this very deliberate and targeted attack on Americans as such. And then at that point, I mean, I think you within the bounds of prudence and recognizing that you can't share everything, you know, you hope that the Mexican state goes along with or at least tacitly allows whatever retribution is dished out. There's historical precedent for this, by the way. But more to the point, my theory of action, which I think has been validated somewhat over the past couple weeks of activity, is that just putting the option on the table is going to spur Mexican officialdom into a flurry of action. My guess, and it's only a guess, but it's an informed guess, is that the number one priority of the Mexican regime right now is to keep the Americans out, and they will do whatever they perceive as necessary to make that happen. And if there is a credible threat, that the Americans will come in, then they're going to do what's necessary. And I don't think there's bonds of fraternity between the state or any of its cartel partners. And they are partners. I think that we've seen that AMLO will sell out any of them in a heartbeat to make the Americans happy and to get him off his back. And in the end of the day, I candidly don't care what his motivations are. If he's doing things that are correct and right and improving the situation, that's what I care about. And that's really why I think this needs to be on the table. We've got to revise the terms of the relationship. And really emphasize, as the United States in every sphere, economic, cultural, financial, and also military, we hold the cards.
4: Couldn't we, for example, simply cut off the flow of cash remittances back into Mexico?
5: Yeah, we absolutely could. And that is something that's an idea I've seen going around. In fact, I believe there's some legislation that doesn't cut it off, but taxes it heavily. I think we need to be targeted in our outreach. So I'm not against that idea. I want to be crystal clear on that. However, I think that when you look at the stratum of Mexican elites who are really responsible for the cartel collusion and are really responsible for kind of the antagonism toward the United States, when I look at a policy, I ask myself if the policy hurts them. I don't think that there is an upper bound to the amount of suffering that Mexican elites will allow their people to suffer. I mean, we've seen it in the past decade. They're simply happy to let hundreds of thousands of their fellow countrymen die in horrific ways. So I'd rather target them. Remittances wouldn't be my first go to in that because the people receiving remittances are not these elites. They're mothers who have to support kids and stuff like that. It's just something that I would want to look at more and see what the effects are and who it hits.
4: Didn't we actually arrest one of the highest ranking? Counter-narcotics officials who turned out to have been corrupted by the very people he was supposed to be countering, and then have him go back to Mexico, be extradited, and have the Mexicans just release him?
5: Absolutely. General Cienfuegos, who was arrested when he tried to change planes in LAX, Cienfuegos was in charge of Sedena. So you would have to imagine the equivalent of the U.S. Secretary of Defense. And so he was in charge of Sedena since retired. He was arrested because there was good evidence, conclusive evidence to my mind, based on what's been publicly reported, that he was, in fact, El Padrino. It was essentially this coordinating godfather of many of the cartels and directing the interface between the army, the Mexican army, and the cartels in Mexico. And the Mexican armed forces basically went into revolt over it. You have to understand that under AMLO, in particular, since he assumed office in December 2018, that he's given tremendous civic power to the Mexican armed forces. They control huge swaths of the economy at this point. They move much more into kind of this PRC model of not just an armed force, but also a major administrator of grand economic projects. And the armed forces effectively told AMLO, get him back or you're going to lose us. And the army being a pillar of his regime at this point, he gave in to the army and he threatened to cut off all cooperation with the DEA to make it impossible for Mexicans to liaise with American law enforcement. And unfortunately, we gave San Fuegos back. We gave San Fuegos back based on a promise that turned out to be false, which was that the Mexicans would investigate him themselves. And as was easily foreseeable within 10 days of his return to Mexico, he was declared clear of all charges. Completely not a surprise. But then why would we extradite him? Because of this reflex within the policy community that I mentioned earlier, which is that the worst thing that can happen is the Mexicans can stop cooperating with us. I think this is being afraid of our own shadow. It's kind of an example of what happens in the foreign policy community a lot, which is sort of this reflex groupthink. you got to keep the Mexicans happy. you got to treat them as friends. You have to respect their nationalistic kind of reflexes, none of which is the case. They have to prove themselves to us, not vice versa. But we did it. We surrendered to it. You know, I actually have tremendous respect for former Attorney General Barr on this. And I think it was against his better judgment is my suspicion. I don't know that firsthand. But I can tell you this over the past two weeks, he's been saying all the right things about Mexico and needing to get tough with them. And I have to imagine that that experience plays a direct role in his policy preferences and advocacy now.
4: If the U.S. really began cracking down, how much would that discomfort the elites and the cartels?
5: Well, it would depend on what specifically we did. But if we did it in a way that, for example, I would prefer, and I think the foundation would prefer as well out in Austin, it would discomfort them quite a bit to deny access to the United States, to deny access to money that's here, to realize that there's suddenly a linkage between security and trade, which we've refused to do, by the way, over the past three decades would be world shattering for a lot of them. And I think there would be some real blowback and force of transformation within the system there, whether it's for ill or better, who's to say, but at least they would know that the era of taking advantage of U.S. goodwill, which is exactly what's been happening, especially over the past decade, is over.
4: In response to our increased rhetoric and our increased legislative initiatives, President Obrador held a press statement last Thursday And I thought sort of went crazy, attacking us and saying he was going to campaign against Republicans. Frankly, if I were the Republican Party, I'd be pretty happy to have a contrast with a pro-narco ally of the cartels. I'm not sure he's thought this through, but were you surprised at the level of intensity of his language?
5: No, no, I wasn't, actually. This is absolutely characteristic with how he treats his perceived domestic opponents in Mexico as well. The Mexican president is a left populist messianic figure who is unburdened by any shred of self-doubt ever. He became president in 2018 on his third try for the presidency. First two, he's dead convinced and still rails about the theory that they were stolen from him. And so he still carries that with him. He believes that he is presiding over what he calls the Cuatro T, the Forti. It's the fourth transformation of Mexican society. So in his mind, and he really does mean this, his presidency is the equivalent to the three previous transformations, which were independence from Spain, the wars of reform in the 1850s and 60s, and then the Mexican Revolution, 1910 to 1920. So you have to have a pretty good sense of yourself to put yourself up on kind of that pedestal. And so he believes that U.S. conservatives are in league with Mexican conservatives to bring him down and to bring the Mexican nation down. And he thinks of himself in sort of this father of the nation capacity. And now he knows he's not a stupid man. He's cunning, but he's deluded by his own concept of self. He knows that there are several million Americans of Mexican descent. I'm one of them. And he thinks that obviously, like, we all look to him as you know our own Padrino, our own Patron, the man who will tell us what to do as Mexicans. And it's simply false. I share your instinctive reaction is that I think every Republican running for office in 2024 ought to send a letter asking that the president of Mexico campaign against him. Because not only will it help them in the general, it's going to help them with Hispanic voters in the United States, too. There's no purchase for this kind of thing here. I'll just add this for a guy who talks incessantly about the need for the United States to respect Mexican sovereignty. His willingness to immediately trespass upon American sovereignty really just shows you how little respect he and I think Mexican elites writ large have for their partner to the north.
4: Let me ask one last big thing, which is I get worried about any proposal to use military force in Mexico for two very different reasons. One, I think it's a very good idea for us to keep the police between the cartels and the military because of the enormous danger of the cartels eventually corrupting the American military. Agreed. And two, I have a hunch that if we did go into Mexico and the current environment, that we would arouse Mexican nationalism against us. That In the end, the Mexican people would dislike Americans operating in their country more than they dislike the cartels.
5: I think those are both really good cautions. On the first one, I think it's important to understand that the cartels are going to corrupt whatever organization they come into contact with. And there are, unfortunately, several examples of US military personnel, principally guardsmen, who have been found to be in cartel pay for one reason or another. They're either directing contents of an armory south, or they're helping shuttle drugs, or something along those lines. So I don't know that you can avoid that. Obviously, if there's a law enforcement option, In Texas, we have the Texas Ranger tradition, which is always very nice, and I'm up for reviving. But I think that's something that we're going to have to deal with. And as we go, we're going to have to be very, very conscious of anti-corruption efforts in general, because you're right. That's the danger to us, I think. As far as aggravating Mexican nationalism, that is so circumstantially dependent. I am not at all in favor of a lot of what's been bandied about in recent weeks and sort of this ill defined invasion of Mexico. We're not going to rerun 1846, 1847, and we aren't even going to rerun 1916, where we had a column kind of wandering about northern Mexico for several months looking for a man that we never caught. When I think of U.S. operations in Mexico, I'm thinking much more over the horizon capacity, very limited entry, followed by prompt exits. It's very, very opaque to me to conceive, very difficult for me to conceive any kind of a standing presence in Mexico. I don't think it's desirable or prudent. All that said, it is possible to do in a way where the whole of the Mexican nation is aroused against us. But we need to think through the extent of whether or not that's true. There is some evidence in polling, and none of it's conclusive to my mind, but it's quite difficult to poll on Mexico in general, and it's difficult to poll on this topic in particular. There's some evidence in polling that there's a substantive number of Mexicans, perhaps even a majority, who welcome an American role in suppressing the cartels. Now, most of that research has been done in the context of presuming a U.S.-Mexico partnership. So, if the Mexican state said, we're going to bring in Americans to help us do this, then I think that that's relatively popular. Even now, I think that's relatively popular. Obviously, the United States doing it unilaterally is a different matter. But here's an X factor. An X factor is that there are multiple levels of authority in Mexico. Mexican federalism is not like ours. It's much more constricted. But that doesn't change the fact that there are individual state governors, there are individual alcaldes, there are party bosses and office holders elsewhere in the country. And we know, for example, that Governor Abbott in Texas has conducted liaisons with the Mexican state governors that border Texas, Tamaulipas, Tamaulipas, Coahuila, Chihuahua. We also know that there is willingness on the part of some of those office holders to liaise with us. So could I conceive of the governor of Nuevo León, to pick an example, cooperating at a state level with American law enforcement in his state? Actually, I could. There is historical precedent for it. And whether or not the Mexican center allows it, I think is a separate question. But there's a lot of shades of gray on this question.
4: It seems to me that what's becoming increasingly clear is that after China and Russia, Mexico has now emerged as our biggest national security concern.
5: I think that's a hundred percent correct. And that is our fault. That is our fault as a nation. It's our fault as a policymaking class. We have coasted for almost a century now without a real Western hemisphere strategy. And that has become especially acute. That absence has become especially noticeable in the past 25 years. And now the bill is coming due. We're going to have to rediscover a lot of things that previous generations of Americans knew, that it's important to have access to the sea lanes in the Caribbean, that it's important to control our southern land border, that it's important to have free passage through the Panama Canal, that it's important to have friendly regimes to our south. And my only hope is that we don't rediscover it at a much too high price.
4: I want to thank you for joining me. I think that you're a remarkable student of this and a courageous one. Your writing in general is so amazingly insightful. I think that it's very important for us to cheerfully stand up to the president of Mexico. I like your idea that maybe Republicans should invite him to come and campaign for their opponents so they could choose between the cartel candidate and the Republican candidate. And I think that's the kind of choice we probably would win almost everywhere.
5: Yeah. How would you report it as an in-kind, though? That's my only question.
4: That's that's right. So anyway, I want to thank you for joining me on News World. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you to my guest, Joshua Trevino, you can learn more about declaring the Mexican drug cartels as terrorist organizations on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review, so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com/newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.